Welcome to TNS, the new school at Commonweal, a collaborative learning project exploring nature, culture, and consciousness. Join us now for a panel discussion hosted by Christina Conklin, titled Resilience Roundtable, The Human Predicament in 2020. This conversation is co-sponsored with the Resilience Project at Commonweal. Welcome, everybody. I am Kira Epstein. I'm the program coordinator for the new school at Commonweal. We're really pleased to be co-presenting this Resilience Roundtable today with the Resilience Project at Commonweal, and you'll hear more about them soon. We are going to be recording this conversation, and produced audio and video files will be available on our website and on SoundCloud, YouTube, Apple Podcasts, and Amazon Music. So you'll be able to find us pretty easily. Um, And Ken Adams is behind the scenes, as always, helping us and doing a great job with the production. So our our roundtable today will be moderated by Christina Conklin. I'd like to say a few words introducing her, and then I will turn it over to her, and she can introduce the panel and get started. Christina is a senior volunteer staff person at Commonweal. She's an artist, writer, and researcher. Her book, The Atlas of Disappearing Places, Our Coasts and Oceans in the Climate Crisis, will be published by the New Press in April. Her sculptures, interactive installations, and participatory walks examine culture's role within nature, natural systems at this time of rapid change and ask people to engage with both personal and societal responsibility. Thank you, Christina, for pulling this, this roundtable together, and I'll turn it over to you. Thank you so much, Kira, for that nice introduction. I'm so glad you could all be with us today, and I especially would like to thank our panelists who are in many time zones and uh, sometimes halfway around the world. So um, thank you so much for making the time. Time is a gift. It's one of the forms of wealth we have, and we are probably the most precious one. So we're very um, pleased you would and happy you would all be with us this morning. So I'm an artist, and a lot of my work is about engaging people and setting the conditions for something to happen uh, and then letting it unfold. So that is what we are all here doing today, Um, trying to perhaps stretch the bounds of the webinar format a little beyond its uh, usual constraints. Um, So here's a a brief outline of what we're going to be doing today. Each of our panelists is gonna speak briefly for about four minutes and um, in response to a thought prompt that I sent out. And they'll have a chance to explain a little little bit about their work in that process. We will then have a half hour conversation and uh, some Q and A. And throughout, we're gonna have a a creative language exercise where I'm going to ask uh, everybody on the call, including the panelists that they would like, to um, put in the chat box, what is resonating with you especially strongly um, uh, as the panelists speak and as we have our conversation? Uh, My feeling is that we don't have yet all the words we need to talk about the difficult situation we find ourselves in with so many intersecting crises and that there is a space for a more embodied language Um, that's not purely in our heads, but also in our hands and hearts. So I'm hoping today we can generate some of that language uh, together. So uh, I think of it as like a crowdsourced intelligence. So thanks for being part of that. 
and as an artist, it's also important for me to have a material practice. So I'm going to be making something as a result of this call. I don't know if it's a poem or a painting yet, but um, if you want to be in on that in some way later on, I will share it with everybody who is on this call who signs up for our mailing list. So please feel free to do that. This roundtable is being co-sponsored by the New School, which runs, runs wonderful programs and dialogues as you were just hearing, and the Resilience Project, which is a relatively new program of Commonweals um, that is seeking to create a learning community around these intersecting global crises. And how do we respond to this new normal that we are all living in? Um, to, the Resilience Project is a nonpartisan, interdisciplinary, intergenerational, international project. So we're not gonna talk about politics and uh, uh, elections, um, but we are gonna talk about uh, resilience in its broadest sense as we consider um, these many intersecting global crises, the pandemic, income inequality, um, war, there are, there are so many um, problems we are all struggling with right now that are connected. If you would like to become part of the Resilience Project's learning community, please join TRP's mailing list. Um, the website is resilienceproject.ngo, as in non-governmental organization. And I'm sure somebody will put that link up, yes. And um, there is a, uh, in the menu there, there's a contact form. So please sign up there. We hope to make this a series and to build a community around uh, this issue. So please uh, join us. Our topic today is the interacting global crises that have become so evident on all our lives this year. We have seen how many global stressors are deeply interconnected and how small events in one part of the world can cascade into multiple larger crises all over the world. This year, of course, pandemics, climate change, food insecurity, income inequality, big data, autocracy, and racism have all been linked in a web of cause and effect. But I came to this topic quite recently. So I wrote this book on climate change in the ocean, and I thought I had chosen quite a large topic. But as I was making final edits to the book in April, uh, it was actually, uh, yeah, late March and early April, you know, the world is falling apart. And I realized that I had only seen, uh, you know, one piece of the puzzle, that there were many more pieces. Um, one of the uh, scholars I was reading was Johan Ruckström uh, from Sweden, and he has a model of nine planetary thresholds. And climate change is only one of them. Um, there are many others, and they have to do with biodiversity and the ozone layer and um, chemical pollutants. And it, there were, it was just so clear that we that that a lot of people are talking about this as a climate change issue, but it's actually much, much bigger. So I realized I needed to widen my lens even further. So I reached out to Commonweal, which does remarkable programming on healing and resilience and justice. And so I just wanted to let you all know that I'm coming to this with beginner's mind as well. Um, our, our panelists are experts and I am not. So I'm, uh, but I have been studying this, I, these interactions through the climate change lens for, for four years 
now. And it, you know, it's just so clear that, um, you know, that this web, that, that the microbiome of the ocean is connected to, um, you know, so many other, other things that, uh, we just need to begin to understand how systems work and how we are part of the system and reintegrate the system. So that is what this project is about. I have a few share slides I'd like to share that are visual representations of this challenge. Close the chat. So this is, uh, some of us are visual learners. So this is a recently created slide for the Millennium Alliance for Humanity in the Biosphere, the MOB, which uh, Joan Diamond, its director is with us this morning. Um, this was created by Michelle Guillet, who's working uh, with the MOB on an arts community project, which is really marvelous. So um, you can check out the arts community at um, What's Next for Earth on Instagram. And it's there's some really cool stuff happening. This, these are the UN Sustainable Development Goals. We're all familiar with these two. Um, and they, you know, they, they, the, the challenge with the, the Sustainable Development Goals is that they are in buckets. Um, they, they, they tend to be in silos and, and thinking in silos has been part of our challenge so far. So something we need to learn to work across rather than in these narrow color bands. So that's, uh, I feel, you know, in, an incomplete model. This is one I've um, been working on. Uh, and, and I think uh, it takes Commonweal's view of the um, interacting stressors and because the, it usefully sit, sees biological stressors and societal stressors and technological stressors. And the technology piece is very interesting um, and, and is pervading all our lives in ways that we can barely compute. <laughs> and I also uh, like that it works from the individual out to the planet because each of these issues help, uh, affects us each at, at all these different levels. But it's an incomplete model. I've been also looking at the Ostrom Institute um, and this is based on the work of um, a woman who, I've forgotten her first name at the moment, but anyway, this is at the University of Indiana. She's a Nobel Prize winner, and she speaks of polycentric circles and how this particular model of the Berlin governance doesn't really matter, but it, it, is a, it shows the complexity of different governance models. So I thought that this is interesting, but, but really, it might look more like this, um, that we are all in different parts of space and time interacting at all these different levels. So there are many ways to think about organization. And, um, and as I said, I think visually. So I am just opening this up to people uh, to, for consideration um, as we think about resilience in um, the context of this conversation. Okay, at this point, I'd like to share with the audience the prompt that I sent to um, the panelists last week, um, because I think it's, it's important for us to speak about 
the language we're using, as I mentioned. For instance, if we're talking about natural resources or human resources in our conversation, those terms imply a certain sort of utilitarian economic view of the world. Um, whereas if we're talking about socio-ecological systems or emergence, uh, we are using a different set of assumptions. Um, and I think this is important to consider as we move forward. So some experts call this subject the human predicament, the polycrisis, existential risk, deep adaptation, sustainability or resilience studies. All of these things mean slightly different things. Some scholars have been studying this web of connections for years and there have been many ways of describing them uh, in nouns that kind of describe a set of conditions. So the global challenge, the human predicament, the polycrisis and systemic breakdown are all descriptions of a situation. Other terms focus more on methods of addressing these intersecting crises. So uh, sustainability studies, regenerative design, deep adaptation, systems change, community resilience. These are all um, processes. So they have verbs implied in each. And both description and action are necessary and have their advantages and disadvantages. So my question to the panelists is, what roles do these or any related terms play in your work? And can you speak a little bit about your work and how you use the language of the, these crises? Um, and the second question I had was that nouns and verbs, description and action live in different places in our minds and our bodies and spirits. And how do we navigate um, the intellectual and emotional and practical aspects of this very challenging work. Uh, this, is a, this is a problem almost beyond description. So um, how can we use language to better embody uh, the complexity of these issues in our lives? So as we listen to the panelists uh, talk about what's re really a very complex and heavy subject, I would like to invite each of you to share in the chat as they're speaking the words and phrases they're using or that you're thinking about that resonate with you really strongly. Um, this is a way that we can hopefully generate something, something new together. For instance, vulnerability, grief, and trauma are all part of this conversation, as are compassion and hope and helplessness. And they get, these words get past the, uh, the purely intellectual. Um, a lot of this work has been done in academia so far, and I think we want to generate a broader conversation in society. So that is, that is uh, my goal. At the end of the dialogue, uh, we will take a minute to reflect on what we've heard and uh, create a kind of word storm in the chat after that to um, see what people are thinking and feeling and responding to. And uh, so please con contribute to the chat generously as we go. Um, we will have a Q&A and then we will see if the, the panelists have any final reflections for us. Um, and that I think will bring us to our time. So I'm gonna int introduce our speakers. Joan Diamond is a leading scholar in the field of global systems change. She's the director of the Millennium Alliance for Humanity and the Biosphere, the MOB, 
at Stanford, which she co-founded with Paul Ehrlich many years ago and which works across disciplines to help so solve social problems. I think I'll introduce people one at a time so they each have their four minutes and I'm gonna turn it over now to Joan. Thank you, Joan. Okay, so thank you, Christine and the New School. It's a great pleasure to be with you this morning. I've been working explicitly, and I'm not a scholar, in this field for over the last 10 years. My main focus has been the mob, which aspires to engage a broad swath of civil society into the conversation, to welcome all those who know something isn't right, who are seeking an understanding, and to help them find their voice in this situation. I also serve on the FAN Initiative and the Advisory Board for OMEGA. In the next four minutes, we're going to take a spin of a kaleidoscope of the human predicament, the global challenge, the global problematique, the global systemic problems or polycrisis. Different names for the same thing with nuanced differences, but at their core is the meta system of problems threatening civilization and our future. A kaleidoscope reflects and mirrors parts and pieces and for me is a good symbol for the complexity, adaptive behavior, unpredictability, and interconnection inherent in the human predicament. I'm going to spin us through a series of lenses for understanding and responding to that predicament. To have agency in the face of the human predicament, one must have a narrative that resonates. And this is very tied to Christina's point of language. Um, this is a very personal thing. There are many narratives out there. The one that works for you is the right one. A few, in addition to those that um, Christina mentioned, are the iPad equation coined in 1971 by Holdren and Ehrlich, where the impact, what's happening in the world is a function of population, affluence, which is a proxy for resources, uh, consumption and economics, and technology, which can work either way to amplify or reduce the other two. Another is the wicked problem model coined by Wes Churchman, who was actually um, his, his uh, memorial was held at Commonweal about 15 years ago. A wicked problem is something that's transdisciplinary, interconnected problems that are often contradictory and that have a large economic burden. Nate Hagen uses the superorganism metaphor for describing the situation. The fan tells the story of civilization at risk through failing stressors underpinning the global system. And there are many more narratives, but all have certain things in common. They're interconnecting problems, nonlinear, systemic foundations of society and civilization. They cross disciplines. They're often contradictory. They're social and biophysical. They're embedded in all is uncertainty and all carry the threat of collapse. They're not a single problem radiating out but a dense knot of problems. So what is collapse? Because that comes up in this conversation. It is not a collapse of our planet. The planet will survive. It may change, but the planet is going to survive. Civilization is at risk of collapse. Governments not able to care for their people, the worst of tribalism 
dominating, hate and fear, billions will die. So it's civilization that we're concerned about. So what are we missing? We talk about pre-collapse. Some would say that's where we are now, the path, resilience, living with the human predicament. How can we reduce the threats? We talk about post-collapse and resets in the emergent society. What do we hope comes through all of this? In my opinion, we don't talk enough about what we need during collapse to emerge into a compelling future. During collapse, we need in place a culture very different from the culture we are uh, currently fostering. Uh, a culture of collaboration, respect, inclusion, humility, the ability to focus on goals, values that need to be aggressively cultivated and rewarded. Building that culture is the most important thing to do now while doing everything else that needs to be done. Finally, on the kaleidoscope world, and I am, this is it. Um, in terms of agency, we each need to find our own place of impact and contribution. Often the issue of hope comes up, and I simply remind you that hope and optimism are very different. Hope energizes action. One can hope and dedicate one's life to reducing the human predicament and not be optimistic they will succeed. Stopping collapse cannot be measured. Um, a, it cannot be the measure. A life lived in service of future generations is the measure. Thank you. Thank you so much, Joan, for your, your wise words. Um, very much appreciated. Lots of good notes coming up in the chat. Okay, we're going to turn it over to Jason Groves, who is a who teaches in the Germanics department at the University of Washington, but really so much more than that. Uh, he's a writer and conceptual thinker. Um, I met him through when he was uh, the artist in residence at the Exploratorium Fisher Observatory, um, where he did some great um, events and thinking about our our literally our place in this world. Um, so his latest book is called The Geological Unconscious, which should give you a sense. And we're going to now turn it over to Jason. Hi, everyone. And uh, thanks so much for hosting uh, Christina and Commonweal. So um, I'll just start off with a provocation um, in response to the first two questions. Um, start my timer, too. Uh, I think that careful description can be a mode of addressing these intersecting crises. And I might say that too, because I am a literature professor. Um, but I think description is related to noticing. And I think about what the anthropologist Anat Singh um, calls the arts of noticing. It's related to observation, but it's more attentive to the unexpected, the unlikely, and the peripheral. Um, and I'll say more about this, but I think this is what poetry describes and what poetry does with language. Um, I'll start with a quote too. This is from John Felsteiner's uh, introduction to his anthology, Can Poetry Save the Earth? Felsteiner was a literary critic, translator and poet um, in the Bay Area. Uh, he writes, when a landscape goes undescribed, it becomes vulnerable to unwise use or improper action. So uh, when a landscape goes undescribed, it becomes vulnerable to unwise use or improper action. So I think, the idea there is that description can function as a form of protection, as care, even as an activist undertaking. 
think the opposite can also be true that in describing something or someone, you can also make them vulnerable or exposed. Something to think about there. So um, as Christina said, I teach at the University of Washington in the humanities division and more specifically in the German department. So I think about language and language acquisition every day. I also teach courses in the emerging multidisciplinary area called the environmental humanities. And I co-led a research cluster on the Anthropocene, which is a name I propose for the crisis. But if I have time, I'll come back to that. I wanna talk a bit about this institution I worked at where I first met Christina in the Bay Area before coming to the University of Washington. And that was at the Exploratorium where my technical role title was an urban fellow. Um, and the Bay Observatory, for those of you who haven't been there is full of instruments and um, tools for making technical observations. And it's also full of books and text rich posters and interpretive panels. And so what I really liked about this space was that language was as much a tool for perception as any camera or any other scientific instrument there. Um, and I should say a bit about other people's work there was also really interesting. One of the first exhibits there was um, explored this relationship between the lexical and the perceptual. It was called the Bay Lexicon. It was developed by the architect Jane Wolf and it consisted of 48 flashcards that examined and defined San Francisco shoreline. Um, in Wolf's words, it was a place-based vocabulary that makes the hybrid circumstances of the San Francisco Bay apparent and legible to a range of audiences with a stake in the landscape's future. These were not new words, but it was, um, yes, it was a lexicon for bringing together um, words which might not normally be associated with one another into and express the hybrid landscape of the city and made the hybrid hybridity of the city more perceptible and more legible and it also began what I think is important from a point of our environmental illiteracy, acknowledging that the places most of us know best defy the vocabulary we've inherited. Um, one outcome of my residency there was to reimagine the Anthropocene as a, the observatory as an Anthropocene observatory. And I think a lot about this term and how it prompts responses and how it also closes down others. Uh, it's a term for a new geological epoch, which has mobilized attention to planetary transformation and planetary crisis. Um, but it's also done so in a way that might not account for the factors, forces, and power relations that are driving this crisis. In fact, some argue that this, is an al this term is an alibi for the capitalist exploitation and colonial dispossession that arguably drives um, planetary transformation. So people have proposed other terms like the capitalist scene or the plantationist scene or even the white supremacy scene to better account for planetary change. And I think about these a lot and I see them at times. So I'll just end with my, in 10 seconds, my response to the second question. Um, how can the language we use better embody the complexity of this topic? To notice language, be careful and vigilant in the use of language and do whatever you need to do to be more mindful of language. I think about biologist Rachel Carson how she writes that language can further violence and legitimate violence. Um, for example, when she writes in Silent Spring about her, how herbicides and insecticides should be called biocides and how that, that uh, lexical shift can activate awareness. Thanks. Wow, thank you so much. Uh, Rachel Carson's my personal hero. Beautiful use of language in her work. Um, so we will now move to Ed Salzberg, who is founder and director of the Security and Sustainability Forum, 
which is a Washington, D.C.-based network of professionals from government and academia and industry. Uh, he is an environmental scientist himself and has been promoting this um, intersecting view of systems uh, for a decade in D.C. So we wanted to uh, bring that perspective as well. Welcome, Ed. All right, again, thank you for inviting me. Um, I was just looking forward to the conversation. Um, I have the privilege of running an organization in which we convene experts like the folks on this, on this panel from all over the world to address some of the most important issues of our time, urban sustainability, food security, environmental justice, um, bigger picture of climate change. Um, so I get to talk to and listen to and learn from uh, some of the real leaders um, across the world. And, um, I want to take some of that experience and bring in some things that I've heard, especially recently, um, into the conversation about language and the importance of language. Uh, but I also want to talk a little bit about actions and how to tr how to go from the language the language itself um, to some framework uh, for action. Uh, most of the folks that we deal with, the people that want to get educated, are practitioners uh, in a large in a large extent, and they want to see action taking place either at the local level or um, something more global. You're listening to a TNS conversation titled Resilience Roundtable, hosted by Christina Conklin. Um, so I, from my standpoint, the language is so important because it's a lens into what the emotions are that people are feeling. And without understanding that, it's very hard to move forward um, in a uh, consolidated way. Um, the emotions are, are, are also a lens into what the core beliefs are of the individuals. Um, and it's very hard to get consensus unless you're starting to get conversations that get down to those core beliefs, which then kind of leads you to what people's convictions are, which are their core values. Um, and from there, from that, I think uh, people can have conversations in which they can see where their convictions are the same and their convictions are different and maybe find ways to bridge that to move forward because those are truths. And unless you can get down to the truths, um, um, you, your, your conversations don't really come together. So one, one quick, and I didn't look at the time, so just prompt me if, I'm go, if I go too long. So, so here's just one quick example. I hadn't talked to my roommate from college in over 10 years, and we had a conversation this week. We are so far polar on social issues, on resilience issues. And I realized that I did not really understand his motivation, and he doesn't understand my motivation. Um, and we didn't have time to try to bridge that gap. But I'm going to give that a try and see if I can take a really right wing guy with me who's way left of center, I think, and see what we can do to bridge that gap to come to some common ground. Um, I think that his convictions are different than mine, and maybe his values are different, but some of them have got to be the same um, overall. So understanding that motivation, I think, is just um, really important. I, I sometimes joke with my wife that there are two kinds of people, the greedy and the not greedy. Um, and um, that's a lens that I think is probably true for a lot of people that has to be broken, uh, broken through. I want to talk about actions for just a minute because you've got to translate all of this into some actions. And let me just talk about immediate action, actions, which are local actions, uh, not necessarily at scale, but actions that people can take within their communities for adaptation and flood control and all of the things that have to be done to make a resilient community. But those aren't scalable. 
that could be they can be scalable in the summation if you can get enough of it going on. But in order to get real transformation in any of the issues, whether it's climate change or whether it's just social justice or whether it's poverty or whether it's food insecurity, uh, we need to scale those solutions up, which is a transformation into a new conviction. Um, and the question is then, how do you get that new conviction? And I believe it comes down to finding ways to develop frameworks like Christina had put up and frameworks that have measures in them so that you can translate them so that you can tell the impact of your actions. Um, I, I know you talked about SDGs just a little bit as being an imperfect measure, and I think you're correct about that, but it is a much better measure of social value than the gross domestic product, which does not, con which does not cover all of the inputs into society. I want to flip up a quick chart um, from, uh, from Hazel Henderson, one of the amazing women that I work with, um, in which she looks at a layer cake um, of inputs into the economy in which the gross national product or the gross domestic product only includes two things. One is what the private sector contributes and then what the public sector contributes. But that's not the whole value of society. There's an underground economy, the love economy that she talks about, which is grandparents taking care of their grandchildren. And then finally, it's just layered, laying on top of mother nature and all the ecosystem services that are contributed here. And if we could put a value on all of those lower layers, we would find we're much richer and we have a much bigger ability to address our social issues. Um, I could go on for a while, but let me just leave it at that. And uh, just say thank you for giving me a chance to participate. Thank you so much, Ed. Uh, I love that idea of a cake, personally. <laughs> so, um, right. And as I was saying, multiple forms of wealth is, is a way we should all be thinking in a more complex uh, way about our, our lives and our economy. Um, and that we are all so much richer than we realize or acknowledge. Okay, so our final speaker uh, is Samantha Supaya, Sam, who is an urban sustain sustainability strategist and consultant. She uh, lived in Northern Europe for uh, more than a decade and is now back home in the Philippines. Uh, her work focuses on the global South and issues of, um, how the South and the Global North really differ in, in their perspectives on these issues and approaches. And um, so she is a, a key part of the Global Regeneration Collab, which if you don't know about it, it's only a year old, I really recommend. It's a network of um, folks who are catalyzing resilience work all over the world. Uh, especially in a, with a bioregional model, and they have um, remarkable events happening all the time. So I will turn this over to Sam. Thank you, Christina, and thank you, Joan, Jason, and Ed. Uh, I'd like to respond to your thought prompts, Christina, by showing you what I embody in myself and how. I'd like to introduce myself as a product of the British Empire in Asia. I was born into a westernized colonized nation that celebrates to this day the arrival of the British. That would be the city-state of Singapore, one of the most unequal places in the world. I was born to a Chinese mother and an Indian father, raised in a westernized capitalist Asian society. I then studied, worked, lived, and loved in Northern Europe. 
I consider myself an orphan and a nomad. In this sense, I am lost. We are experiencing late stage capitalism where most people my age have little to no economic power compared to those of previous generations when they were our age. In this sense, I am lost. Like many millennials and Gen Zs, I don't agree with our dominant model of civilization. Gramsci beautifully said, the old world is dying, the new world struggles to be born, and now is the time of monsters. In this sense, I am lost. Like most of those in my generation, I am lost. Joan mentioned the narrative that works for you is the right one. I'm speaking to you from a former American colony, from a society that is deeply embedded in colonial mindset, first from Spanish occupation, and then from the Americans. With the arrival of the Spanish in the Philippines in 1571, humanity brought into being a new type of city, the global city. I say all of these things because I'd like to acknowledge that the story of human resilience globally needs to be seen from the lens of real history as most of the world has experienced it, lived experience, AKA the global South. The above is important because of something Christina touched upon, intellectualization versus embodiment. The embodiment is not only rational thought, it's not mental, it's not through words, it's not in your head. It's in your body, it's in your spirit physically, spiritually, it's felt, it's experienced. It exists in the liminal spaces between people, between societies. It's energy, it shows up in how we be. That's my reality. And that would be my four minute spiel. Wow, thank you, Samantha, so much. Okay, we've got lots of great things happening in the chat. I, people really appreciated your, your thoughts on decolonization and it being embodied um, in, in, in people. So thank you. I would like to now just really open this up for a conversation um, between all of us. And, oh, no, sorry, Steve. <laughs> Last but not least, Steve Heilig who is a, a, a valued member of the Commonweal community, has hosted many, many, many of these, such conversations and is a doctor, uh, is the co-founder of the Collaborative on Health and the Environment, which looks at environmental impacts on human health uh, and the complexity of that relationship. So I'm, with apologies, I would like to now turn it over to Steve. No apologies needed. It's usually me calling on other people. I know how it goes. <laughs> So happy to be here. Thank you for inviting me. About a month ago, a little over a month ago on a Wednesday, I set off for Commonweal from San Francisco. It's about an hour drive and one of the most beautiful drives in the world going over a mountain usually. This was on a Wednesday morning at about 7 a.m., which later or has become since then a kind of a legendary day where we had a really strange uh, Phenomena where this, the massive smoke and ash and dust from the fires was mixed with our fog, and the sun never came up. And it was really something to drive over there. I actually pulled over to turn around twice, but I kept going. 
It was dark red, orange, black fog, as thick as could be. And it did not get better. And so in the hour and a half, it took me, you know, a lot longer to get over the hill. Uh, it got darker. And I spent the day out there where it was actually through the mid-afternoon getting even darker. Now, I've spent 40 years almost now since undergrad days where I majored in environmental studies and in uh, ecology, uh, kind of with an apocalyptic mindset. And this was the first time, and I've traveled all over the world and been in lots of strange situations, but this is the first time where it felt truly like an apocalypse. And that the apocalyptic word and surreal as a term are really overused now, but that's what it was. And that day was just really burned uh, into my psyche and to many others where people actually were crying that day and were afraid to go outside uh, and really felt it. So it made it real, this, this, this impending kind of doom that uh, we've been talking about and that this great uh, confluence of threats is, is, is bringing home to us. Now, there are you know, a whole bunch of threats as we've, as we've mentioned and the kind of trigger for them now is this pandemic. I wound up uh, starting my career as in infectious diseases and epidemiology and public health. And uh, this was predicted by many people that we would have worldwide pandemics. And we've had them before, 100 years ago, an influenza one. We have it again now. Um, there are many things to say about that. The response in some realms, such as treatment, has been good. Most of them, it's been lacking quite a bit. And we are now looking at a surge worldwide in the cases again, which uh, is predictable, but also very threatening. Uh, so add on to that, I did a little essay for Commonweal at, at request called the Triple Endemic uh, a few months ago, and add on to that another one of them, which is the pandemic we have of misinformation, uh, which has been you know, fostered by the internet and fostered by, uh, as I mentioned, Samantha mentioned, capitalistic uh, uh, interests that want to keep things the way they are, and really by people's psychology of wanting to spread bad information. So this is this continues and really threatens our response as well. Um, then in the great uh, kind of realm of this we're living in is the climate uh, threat, climate change, which is, of course, a big contributor to these fires and so forth, too. Whether we really respond to that in an adequate way remains to be seen. Uh, so far, the uh, evidence is not encouraging, but there are possibilities. Um, the real way I look at this is that we are now in the new abnormal, not the new normal. It's the abnormal, and it's going to stay this way for some time. The uh, virus is not going away anytime soon, even with uh, a good vaccine and uh, with good responses. It's going to stay with us in various parts of the world and come back for the time being. So we can call it abnormal. It may, may become the new normal right now. It's the new abnormal. One of my favorite uh, teachers and thinkers is somebody we've had on at Commonweal. Her name is Joanna Macy. I'm sure many of you know about her work. And she calls us, I mean, we're looking for a hopeful perspective on this. She calls it part of the great turning. Now, you don't have to, 
to fully buy into the Buddhist perspective that she has on this, but that what it means is that the crises will force a response and will, will force a change that will come out towards, in the long run at least, a more positive future. I'm hoping for that too. I've been trying to look for silver linings in this uh, situation we're in. Uh, the one that people first seized upon was the decline in carbon emissions around the world. Whether that maintains and stays still remains to be seen. It's uh, very uh, much an unknown at this point. Um, but I think all of these rely upon people coming together into a, an ecological mindset, which ties everything together, but then people coming together to do real systemic change. And now this isn't easy. We've done it in the past in this country. We had the New Deal coming out of the Depression. We had actually the, the World War II effort coming out of the threat of fascism in the world. And these were huge efforts that relied upon collaboration and fact-based uh, you know, perspectives and work. So whether we get to that, I think, still remains to be seen. One, there's an old song that I used to listen to a lot. It was a group called World Party, actually. And one of the lines I liked in one of their songs was, and this, he was actually taking the lyrics from the work of Bertrand Russell, History of Western Civilization, was, we are living in a slow motion landslide. So people who have been in landslides, and I have, unfortunately, um, you may know you can survive these if you do the right things often, but if you don't, you get buried. So I will close here for now. The great uh, psychologist and thinker Carl Jung said, the most intense conflicts, if overcome, can leave behind a sense of security that is not easily disturbed. It is just these intense conflicts and their conflagration which are needed to produce valuable and lasting results. So it's adaptation coming out of conflagration. Right now, we are very much in, I think, the early part of the conflagration and whether we adapt to it in a way that minimizes the, the, the harms and the suffering, which is the big key here to minimize suffering, really of all species, not just humans, I have to say. As, as, as I think you said at the beginning, Christina, uh, the earth will survive one form or another how we get through this by minimizing suffering of those who are most vulnerable, impoverished, et cetera, already, and the rest of us and other species as well that we live with, that remains to be seen. So we're striving for a sense of practical hope here. So that's it for now. Thank you. Thank you, Steve. Um, yes, you, uh, the word conflagration is fabulous. And the other thing that your comments made me think of Actually, that that day with that red sky, that was my birthday. So <laughs> that, that was a really hard day to celebrate. Um, but uh, yeah, it, it really marked everybody in our region um, in a way. Yeah, you know, I, I'd suggest, is, sorry, I'd suggest if anybody hasn't seen this, you could probably just Google, uh, you know, Northern California or San Francisco uh, red sky day or fire day, and you'll get an amazing amount of photos that are really, they look like, uh, you know, in the Lord of the Rings, they look like Sauron has come in Mordor to, uh, you know, the great forces of evil have taken over. And many people were saying that. It reminds me of these science fiction uh, and apocalyptic literature, uh, you know, come true. 
Right. And I, and I guess one thing that comes to mind for me is that this has been happening all over the world for a long time. And the fact that it reached the Bay area, um, got our attention, but, um, it's making me think about, um, some of Sam's comments and, uh, in the global South and what, um, you know, how this is affecting, uh, you know, climate refugees, uh, is, you know, burning of Indonesia. There are so many of these things that are happening out of sight and out of mind for us. Um, uh, my writing on the Arctic is, is catastrophic for the Inuit right now. So I think, um, right, it's the waking up that needs to happen. And I guess I would just um, just ask the panel to, to, you know, if you have anything to say about the speed and the scale of our waking up. And um, yeah, what what is, uh, what it, is, they call sea level rise, they call the slow emergency. Um, and it's, it's sort of like some of these other crises. It's... Um, it's not going to happen all at once. It's going. To, it happens all at once, geologically speaking. But in our lifetimes, it's going to feel like a, a, a perhaps a slow burn. So, what are your thoughts on um, scale and speed? Anyone? Joan? Yeah, we can't hear you. I look at it a little bit differently. While I think there are issues that are being included in the description of the predicament now, well, they've always been there. The injustice, the inequity, if you go back decades in the writings, those have always been part of it. But, you know, I look at it that what I see is that there are millions and millions and millions of people who are aware that things are interconnected that the world's not working, that there's severe injustice, that our environment is degrading, and what they're seeking are ways to engage. Mm -hmm. And that it's more the, from, you know, from my work, it's more the engagement question, the response question, than the um, waking up question. Mm -hmm. I think some of it has to do with how we assign values within societies to certain inputs. So you get a lot of rich people that continue to get richer. I think the um, the virus really brought home the fact that undervalued services, uh, nurses, uh, healthcare workers, first responders, are, are their input is way more valuable than the CEO of large companies. Yet it's the CEOs of large companies that you know, make the make the the large dollar. So something is really upside down here in capitalism in the United States, uh, especially. And um, you know, finding ways to assign values differently, I think, is a step is a step forward. I think that's a conversation that we need to have and find a way to do it. There's huge resistance to that. I mean, there are lobbyists and there are um, um, it, there's uh, money to be made by digging more fossil fuel out of the ground, um, but those values are not values that we can, that really support society as we move forward. Oh, Christine, I think you are muted. Yeah. Thank you, of course. Um, one of our audience members uh, has brought up the idea of planetary hospice. And um, Steve, thinking of, of your work and, and, and um, 
Commonweal's work with um, it, people with illness and major illness. Um, that just struck me as a really rich phrase because it's about caring and it's about not um, not rushing in with um, emergency procedures that might actually make create more harm. And it's about presence. So anyway, I just wanted to mention that and and see if anybody else had any further further comments. Well, I'll just say, I mean, I, as a former hospice director, um, very aware of that model, very much supportive of it. And what that, the main, uh, I mean, has developed a whole new specialty in medicine over the last decade called palliative care, which is basically saying, you know, I mean, this is why the uh, the analogy is somewhat limited in some ways. It's basically saying you can't fix this. The person is going to die, but you're going to make that as painless and uh, hopefully as even, you know, maybe even rewarding if possible that you can. But you're not going to jump in and try to fix things, you know, and that actually cause more harm, perhaps. So, um yeah, it's it's uh, it, it is it is something that can work quite a bit. Um, we're trying in this greater context of the world to uh, do that for one thing, but also hopefully to fix things to some degree that we come out of this with a better world. Right. I think Sam had something to say, and then Jason. Thank you. Um, I think. This is the fundamental issue with the whole concept of development in the first place that is essentially defined by somebody, imposed on other people, and then justified by everyone. Um, there is a huge space between understanding the problem and taking action, massive. There is understanding that does not translate because we haven't embodied it. We don't like to sit with discomfort. And when I say we, I actually mean a lot of contemporary civilization. We want instant gratification. We want to see impact. We talk about impact a lot, talk about development a lot, right? And we don't want to sit with discomfort. Whereas resilience is about sitting with discomfort. It's about looking at the thing that you broke or looking at the thing that has broken. So for me, action is dialogue about being able to sit with discomfort, about being able to sense into what this means because we are all experiencing this without acknowledging the experience of this discomfort, of this pain, because this is a, a pain that is felt very real today. You talk about, for example, sea level rise being a slow problem here in the Philippines is not a slow problem. Thank you very much. That discomfort we are feeling, and you're talking about impact, development, action. What can we impose on other people today? And when, what we want, for example, in the Global South is for you to sense with us, right? For you to experience with us. Solidarity is what we need in humanity. It's something that we miss in this understanding and action. We forget there is a space to be. 
Um, and that can only be sensed into through a deep exploration, deep knowing of ourselves as people. What are we comfortable with? Who are we? What is our identity? And how do I relate to other people given that that is my identity? Not just other people, but also that, that obviously translates to the scale of an organization or a society or a government or a nation, etc. So these are, these are very sort of real things that we're talking about. It's not academic, this is experience. It's happening now, today, to people alive now, here. Yeah, when Sam and I were having an earlier conversation, she made the very cogent point that, um, yeah, the global north is, is, is very up in arms and upset about what's going to happen with um, uh, many of these climate crises, you know, flooding of cities and different things. And um, could you could you speak a little bit about how the about that that dynamic between the north and the south as you see it? I do, and I wanna I wanna just briefly touch upon um, the power that America doesn't always know that it has in terms of the narrative, in terms of the voice, right? American imperialism globally is very alive, very well in the media that it propagates. And that's one, so it's kind of my appeal into being in this space, to being able to say that, because it's often not known, right? You guys are simply unaware of the power that you have, which is a privilege, a luxury. It's amazing. The voices of the global north, especially North America and Europe, but especially, you know, for my context here in Southeast Asia and the Philippines, a former American colony, we listen a lot to the American voices. And that undermines our ability to build societal resilience, simply because we don't place value on our voices. That's a colonized mindset. We don't place value on our stories. We don't place value on our pain. We're listening to your pain. We're talking about Black Lives Matter. That's crazy. You're listening to a TNS conversation titled Resilience Roundtable, hosted by Christina Conklin. So I guess to round, round off on this point, the words that you need, the narratives that you need are different from the words that we need. And we need to be listening to us more and you need to be listening to you more, I guess, is my point. Thank you, Sam. That's, that's great um, insight. Uh, Jason? Yeah, I wanted, I, I wanted to let those words, Samantha's words linger for another minute. Um, it's very powerful. I, and I want to, I had wanted to say something about hospice, but I also want to, um, yeah, add a word. One of the other terms proposed for the Anthropocene was the agnotocene coming from um, agnostic in the sense of not knowing and the studied, uh, the studied ignorance of particularly people in the global north with respect to the impacts of um, the global north, specifically imperialism and colonialism, both within the global north and within the global south. Um, another term uh, makes me think of is from the Bengali writer Amitav Ghosh, who speaks of, maybe some people know his novels. Um, he has a term, the great derangement. Right? Uh, the great turning was mentioned, and I thought about the great derangement um, 
as, and this is also particularly a term applied to the global North and to um, particularly colonialism. And one of his examples of the great derangement is why so many colonial cities are placed right on the water's edge, whereas the um, pre-colonial cities are pulled back from the coast a lot. And just the, the, the madness of situating so many of these areas, now metropolises, on the water, um, even at times when pre-climate change, the, um, um, there was plenty of knowledge about the harm uh, and that people would be exposed to by placing, by developing there. But um, yeah, and one other thing too, if I could just have the microphone for a second, I think too about how this sense, and for me, I, I do approach these poly crises as impending and I think it's so important also when we kind of think about this more embodied and positionally in my own positionality um, as a settler on here in Seattle, Coast Salish land, how this doom is not impending. Um, and at least if we're talking about lived experience, um, everything with which I associate climate change um, has taken place here um, centuries ago in terms of dispossession, in terms of the uprooting, in terms of this loss of um, contemporary life ways. Um, the loss, it's, it's to a certain extent not, I don't wanna say it's lost forever, but um, it's a moment of uprooting. Finally, if I could say one more thing really briefly, because this I've been thinking about hospice a lot too, and it comes from an academic article and I can share it in the notes, but one of the biggest changes I had in my own thinking was an article um, about terminality in relationship to the um, uh, environment, various, the poly crisis, let's call it, particularly environmentally. And it was from, from a writer who identifies as queer and exposed for me, um, someone who's not identified that way, um, the focus in the environmental movement on futures and on salvation and on saving. And this was a writer who was, um, was coming from and out of the HIV and writing about HIV AIDS epidemic and how um, this one could have a relationship to endings and to terminality and to the dead and dying um, that was, that took that for granted, but which, um, did not also associate that with futurelessness or neglect or abandonment. And I think so, so many times with environmentalism, there's this phobic stance towards frailty, towards endings, and there's this rush to, to try to save everything. On the other hand, there's, uh, there's uh, a stance and there's a position which just says, okay, this is going to happen. And it's more of a place of neglect and abandonment. And I was thinking about hospice in, and sitting with um, the dying um, and that being an act of care rather than an act of neglect or abandonment that I found to be, me, myself to be really moving and something that we might scale up um, when we're thinking about certain environmental crises like species extinction, et cetera. I'll shut up now, sorry for taking up so much time. No, that's really, um, it's, it's really rich. And I think it's also really appropriate in the commonweal context. Um, that is the, the way they hold, um, uh, we hold uh, these issues, these heavy, heavy issues is to sit with them. And 
So I um, just want to see, ask if anybody has a has a final comment before we uh, turn to some uh, questions. Ed. Oh, can't hear you. There we go. I, I just wanted to agree with Sam and just follow up what she said. And I think that here in the United States, so I grew up as a Caucasian privileged American here in the United States. And what I'm learning now, because I'm very close to the school system here, is um, how inappropriate and wrong our education has been over the years and how we left out so much and really tainted um, actions that, that um, Western Europe and the United States has taken globally. Um, and the fight is on here in the United States to change those books, but I think it's gonna be a long fight. Um, even changing the names of buildings from um, racist generals to um, you know people that have more the kind of values that we have right now is still a fight even in um, wealthy you know progressive uh, communities. So I think that uh, I don't know what the rest of you think about this, but I think the core of this, at least here in the United States, is getting the education to be really inclusive and really understanding you know what what's happened over the years and and what needs to be done to change that and to take responsibility for it um, before you can move forward I think right okay I, yes I agree I I, I think uh, just look speaking for my own country right now what we're experiencing is a catastrophic failure of the education system <laughs> um, and uh, so I would like us all, because we, we did cover some pretty heavy material there, I thought it was very rich dialogue, and I would like us to take um, about two minutes in, in silence now just to reflect on this, this, these different senses of embodied pain and the peoples all over the world who are being impacted in various scales at various times. Um, I, there's a, a scholar at the University of Michigan uh, who I really like, Kyle White, an indigenous scholar. And he um, basically said, cyclical time is um, something he thinks a lot about, but also he says, you know, indigenous folks basically have already done all this work and we uh we are um we're ahead of the curve on this we we've experienced it already and so making the point that there is so much wisdom in that experience that we could and should be uh, attending to um for everybody's sake and also to the point that this is a more than human world right that that we are just, uh, we are one species uh, of, among billions and or millions. And, um, and that is something that's always present in my mind, in my research uh, in the, about the ocean. Uh, I learned that only 9% of microorganisms in the ocean have even been identified. So we don't know what we're losing. Um, and, whether or not it's utilitarian for us in terms of the next cure for cancer or whatever, it, it's, um, it behooves us to um, attend to the other species as well. And so anyway, I'm going to um, stop talking also, and we will just have two minutes of silence to 
let this settle in our bodies. Thank you, everyone. So what I would like to do now is uh, a lot of us have been commenting in the chat and um, there's also going to be a, a time for Q&A and then with the panelists will we'll share any um, reflections based on what we come up with together. Are there any words that really resonated most strongly with you, approaches that could help um, us sit with this problem and also address it. Uh, we, we've got a few minutes left for anybody who would like to uh, contribute at this point. I responded back to Sam's um, observation that um, the question is, what do we need to let die? And I think that's just a way to frame thinking about moving forward. Um, and it's just not a way I thought about moving to resilient to resilient society. Uh, but I'm gonna think about that because I think there are things we have to let go of. Yeah, it's in the letting go that we can make space for what, what needs to be born. And if I could expand onto that a little bit, it's not just about what it is we need to let die, but after we've sort of understood what it is, then how do we let that die? Uh, that's going to show up in millions of different ways and being able to practice that is important and i think that's where community plays a role i think it's very hard to hold this individually and that part of i again my goal with this group but also um you know resilience in general i think is uh is about creating shared space where you can both let things pass and and build the new um together. Joan, did you have any thoughts? Well, of course, many thoughts, and many will continue to linger. But I think this question of the letting go in the death and what's afterwards, what's being built, is much more complex um, and, and treacherous so that we don't build on the ruins of what was before. But how do you envision something, I'll say, new, and then really build towards that. And I guess, you know, my personal challenge coming out of this is really to think about what needs to be done now so whatever is rebuilt can really be something different. And that's really hard. I mean, <laughs> in, in this moment, it's, it's um, a lot of emotion, but a blank um, or just say blank. Yeah, there does, it does feel like the edge of something and, and a, a not knowing time. We are, we are all uh, in this liminal space together. And so I guess uh, maybe my last question would be how for each of you, uh, it's, it's again about this navigation. How do we uh, navigate unknown waters and um, begin to lay down those pieces of of the new um, 
that has to be that has to be born. Um, what are your thoughts on on how we just take put one foot in front of the other? Um, those of us who are willing to to stay with the um, discomfort of it all. How do we how do we work together and how do we bring other people into the conversation? Just a final go round with each of you. Steve? Uh, I'll say um, you know, one of the famous quotes in environmental history is from Aldo Leopold. And he said, uh, this is from 1940s, he said, one of the para the yeah, paraphrasing, the perils of an ecological education is that one lives alone in a world of pain. So if you are in alone in that world, then you're immersed in pain. And it's very hard to come out of that and, and unless you're able to have a sense of working with others. Um, so, you know, you, I know, Christina, you said stay away from politics, but I think on every one of these crises that we're talking about, there is an element of a failure of leadership. And so what is leadership in the broad sense? It is electing, supporting leaders who are, in fact, cognizant of the crises we face and are willing to do something about it, rather than just going with the status quo or dancing to the tune of the money, which is what it's always about, <laughs> you know, follow the money. Um, one of my, he's actually a friend, but a very famous uh, musician, Carlos Santana, recently posted for the first time a, a political, he said, vote. And somebody asked him the first question, vote for who? And he said, vote for the one who seems most compassionate to you. So you got to start with that, somebody who can actually look at the world in a way where they care about something other than themselves and their own interest and their own uh, immediate circle, as it were. Um, so, in the, you know, I'll just add this. I worked with, uh, <clears throat> excuse me, with Planned Parenthood for years and partly around the world. Some people have observed that the countries, uh, communities who have reacted best to this so far, to the pandemic at least, have been led by women. And uh, I don't, uh, I mean, that's true in, to some degree. Part of what I see here is a need for, you know, I, I'd be much more hopeful if we had a lot more women in position of leadership. Um, and that's not automatically a better qualifier, but when you look at the essence of, of development in the world and of people getting some power for themselves, Societies have improved, you know, if you want to take one variable, one of the ver biggest variables in healthcare and community is giving women control over their lives and allowing them to lead. And that actually is something that I believe is very true. And uh, I hope that it that we get there in some way, uh, not just here, but around the world. Otherwise, we get stuck in the same old mindsets and uh, don't really get anywhere. So it's not a panacea, but it's an element that I think needs to be put into this, and particularly with regard to leadership, which that's, that's just what we need. We've been going backwards, obviously, for the last few years on a lot of these issues, and uh, that has to change. Is that apolitical enough? That's perfect. I, I was just gonna add that um, in the, the, the Jim Hawkins, or Paul, no, Paul Hawkins drawdown climate plan, um, 
that in the top 10 things that are basically going to turn the climate price um, problem around, literally in terms of, you know, CO2 emissions, number six is education of women and girls. So right. that shows you how, how interconnected um, all these systems yeah. are. Um, and so I'll just add the last thing. It was at the end of the, my, my little essay there too. Um, you know, this is really tough stuff. And so what I rely upon, and I used a quote from The Plague by Albert Camus, you know, a very famous book, very relevant now, unfortunately. And he concluded, or his character concluded, who was a doctor working to fight the plague, was there are more things in men to admire than despise. And I hang on to that because on the personal level, when you talk to individual people and even in groups, people are, are good. It's our systems and the people who raise to the top often who cause so much trouble and who you know, impede progress. But the goodness of the basic human heart and mind is something that I really try to settle on every day when I go about my life. And I hope that this becomes, uh, you know, becomes more prominent in our leadership over time. End of sermon. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Um, Jason? Um, yeah, I was going to ask to be reminded what the question was, but I think I remember. And, uh, uh, and I'll be very quick because uh, I think one of the things we can do, and we, I'm speaking from people from uh, my positionality who have taken up, I think, way too much space in, in the last kind of couple hundred years probably, is often to get out of the way. And um, one... Uh, and also, this is not an experience I've had to deal with so much myself, but I just want to read a quick quote from, um, this came from Nancy Vale, someone who I don't know, but people you might, some of you might know, who um, directs and I think co-founded the Pi, Pi Ranch, which is a really great place um, in the Bay Area, with, whose historic farmhouse recently burned down. Um, and she had this to say, I, I read this, and it was someplace that was really important to me, and I read this on, on Facebook. She said, with respect to this burning down, uh, may this be the beginning of transformation. May we resolve to bring back indigenous knowledge, heal the damage done since colonization, bring justice to the lands and the people, build resilient homes for all people, practice climate-friendly everything, feed people, love more. So I just want to leave it with those words from someone who experienced um, a very immediate um, catastrophe that was part of a much, much larger one with the recent fires in the Bay Area. Yeah, I, I have felt a shift in, in the course of my four years of researching, both in awareness and in, I would say, you know, the depth of the knowledge, the embodiment of the knowledge. Um, it's, it's getting real. And, um, and maybe we're late to the table. Um, in terms of, you know, the impact it's been having in, in many other places for a long time now. So um, I think we need to wrap it up there. I'm going to turn it over to Kira in just a moment. But first, I want to thank each of you so much for taking the, the time and uh, sharing your wisdom. Um, it's, it's 1 a.m. where Sam is, so I especially want to give a little shout out <laughs> to her. and. Um, and hope that we can gather again in the future. Um, thank you so much. And I will take it back to Kira now. 
Thank you so much. Uh, again, we'll have the recordings produced of this conversation available in about a week or two. And we hope to see you at another event with us as soon as you are drawn to do it. Christina Conklin, Joan Diamond, Steve Heilig, Samantha Sapaya, Ed Salzberg, Jason Groves, and Stan Wu and the Resilience Project at Commonweal. Thank you for being with us at the New School at Commonweal. You've been listening to a TNS conversation co-presented with the Resilience Project at Commonweal titled Resilience Roundtable. Thank you for listening to TNS, the new school at Commonweal. The new school at Commonweal is directed by Michael Lerner. Our program coordinator is Kara Epstein. Our audio producer is Ken Adams. And our theme music is by Suzanne Ciani. Visit us online at tns.commonweal.org. That's tns.commonweal.org. Commonweal is spelled C-O-M-M-O-N-W-E-A-L. You can also find us on SoundCloud, iTunes, Facebook, YouTube, and Vimeo. Thanks for listening.